Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. The most famous sermon in American history is undoubtedly Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards' uh, masterpiece of the sermon. But really, uh, it wasn't his best sermon. It was a good one, don't get me wrong. But he had plenty of others that were, I think, better. And it wasn't really characteristic of his sermon like it was the sort of things that he emphasized all the time. In fact, much more of an emphasis in Jonathan Edwards was the grace of God that triumphs over judgment and sin. And so I'm not really sure why that one has somehow survived. I also feel uh, acutely aware of that and that the section we're in in Romans as we go through this book is largely uh, Paul's attempt to convince you that you and I have no hope apart from a righteousness that God gives as a gift through faith. That is, he's exposing to us the guilt and power of sin. And we've been doing this for several weeks. And we have one more today. And, and, and it's only because we see our desperate need do we find the provision of Christ and the righteousness that He gives so beautiful and so worthy. And so we have to explore this. But, but I'll be honest, I'm eager to get to the solution uh, and how He addresses our need with the grace. But this last passage is very important. It is among the most clear in all the Bible about the true condition of our souls apart from Christ. It is very clear. It is very difficult to hear. But it is the difficult news that leads us to the good news. And so as we uh, look to this passage, the concluding one, I've titled it The Nail in the Coffin, you know, hopefully. Uh, I have been in the visitation room at the funeral home. And the family is left as we get ready to go to the funeral. And I stand in there and they shut the doors. And they pull the casket shut if they're going to wheel it into the chapel. And they get a key out and twist and, you know, it's the contemporary version of the last nail. And they shut and lock the casket. And the family's not there to see it, but I've seen it lots of times. And it's so very final. And it's so very conclusive. And so is this passage. Very final. Very conclusive. About what we are and why we need Jesus. Before we read it, let's pray together. Father in heaven, our desire is not to leave people in despair, but to drive us to despair of ourselves, to despair of being moral enough or religious enough or uh, disciplined enough to save ourselves, but to, and, and to despair of some idea of autonomy, that there's in any salvation in the world. In fact, let us despair of finding glory in the created things and instead turn to You. That would take a supernatural work from You. And so we pray You would help us see the despair of ourselves with the hope of Christ. We pray that You would take Your Word and, and lead us to Your Savior who was beautiful and excellent, who loved us enough to give Himself up for us that we might be free from the sin, the guilt, and the power of it. Now we pray, send Your Spirit to Your church and bless the reading and study of Your Word this morning that Your church may be nourished and may flourish in Jesus. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen. From Romans chapter 3, I'm going to, I'll begin reading in verse 9. Romans 3, 9. This is God's Word. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is God's Word. It is completely true. And it is utterly trustworthy. If you have been connected to a church for a long time, that word sin gets used a lot. The Bible uses it a lot. It is our greatest need. It's to understand our sin and how to deal with it. But I want you to imagine explaining the sin and the concept of sin to someone who's not religious, who's not been exposed to that word very much. Uh, the, the New Testament word for it actually came, at least in ancient history, from a word that was used on the archery fields. When archers were being trained or at a contest, they would shoot arrows at a target. And when the arrow missed the target or fell short, they called it hamartia, the Greek word that we translate sin. Now, by the time of the New Testament, that word had come to mean uh, uh, offending a deity by uh, falling short of his or uh, your obligations to the deity. But I think that image of the archer can be useful. The idea is that you and I were made to reflect God and to bear His image and to take care of His creation and to represent Him in what He has made. And we miss the mark. We fall short. But I think that image can be uh, troubling also. It gives us this idea that what we're doing is we're shooting arrows at a target and it's an impossibly small target. And that uh, we're trying, we're doing our best, but God seems irrationally angry over the little places we mess up. But this passage helps us see it right. It's not that we're simply shooting our arrows at the target, but we've turned and lobbed arrows into the grandstands where the gallery has stopped to watch. And then we turn our arrows from the audience that's watching and we aim at the referee. We're abusing the whole system and everything has gone wrong. This passage shows us how deeply and profoundly sin has affected us. And Tim Keller had a, a really convincing and a good outline of this passage. So I'm going to largely use what he had to say as an outline. I think it's persuasive. I'll, I'll modify it a little bit. But he points out that the, the passage deals with how sin has affected us, particularly inside. 
So we might say sin and self. It shows us how sin has affected our relationship to people and to neighbors and, and those who are around us. We call that sin and others. And it shows us how sin has affected our relationship to God. Sin and God. Let's start looking at sin and self. How has sin affected us? Well, in verse 10 it says, As it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Righteous would be something like the opposite of sin. If sin is living in offense to a deity, righteous is standing in right terms toward him. So one who is righteous is in a right relationship to God. And the, the Bible tells us that there isn't anyone who qualifies. None are righteous, not even one. But here's the, 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 the big important part. No one understands. That is... No one really gets how deep this has affected us. We, we look and we see the wrath of God around us. We see that we've offended Him. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness, it says back in chapter 1. We find ourselves trying to make ourselves righteous by good moral works or by religious duties, and we keep falling short, and no one understands why this is working, or, and no one fully grasps the depth of our sin. We don't get it. You see... Sin has affected our ability to understand. It's affected our minds. We're going to distort the truth. We're going to misrepresent what we see. We're going to be selective in what we recognize and pay attention to. And so we obscure and we, we tend to make ourselves feel a little better about who we are. We like to compare ourselves to other people, at least in places where I feel like I'm doing better. I'll ignore the places I'm not. And, and so this effect of sin on my head is that I no longer understand who I really am in my condition. More than that, it says no one seeks for God. Now that's a pretty powerful statement. A, a, a lot of people would say maybe Paul went a tad too far there. After all, the world is notoriously religious. There's never been a, a culture in human history that wasn't religious. Religion's everywhere. People pray. People do religious activities. How is it possible that Paul could say, no one seeks for God? After all, there's a movement in the American church that's built on the idea that seekers come, seeker-sensitive churches. It's the whole philosophy of ministry. How can we say, no one seeks for God? Well, a lot of people, including Thomas Aquinas and Jonathan Edwards, have pointed out that this passage does not say no one seeks for things from God. Plenty of people seek for comfort from God. We feel sorrow or disappointment. And I want God to comfort me. I want Him to address my pain and heal it. Lots of people seek for that. And, and, and a lot of people like to know that when everything around them is breaking and messed up, that God is for me. And so I can feel a sense of calm. So I like God's peace and His calm. And, and I think a lot of people seek God's power. They look at their lives and say, I'm not sure I'm happy with the way things are going, and I want power to change. You've heard of AA's 12 steps. Among them is to find a higher power. And it explicitly says it doesn't matter what higher power you choose. Just your own conception of a higher power. Because you need more power than you've got on your own to be able to change your addictions. And so here's a person who's felt the pain of their addictions, who's seen the pain they've caused others, and they want power from God to turn away from that. 
people seek the power of God, there is no doubt. But that's not the same thing as seeking God. It's like seeking God for his stuff. There's a powerful illustration that's in the parable we're actually going to study tonight in evening worship. In the parable of the prodigal son, the younger son comes to his father and says, Give me my inheritance now. Now that little phrase is, it may hide the truth, but here's what he said. I want my stuff. Actually, that's not true. I want your stuff. But when do you get an inheritance is when someone dies. What he was saying was, I want your stuff and not you. He gets his stuff and he leaves to prove it. The younger son shows this hideous part of our souls. We want the blessings of God without God. And, and, and you can prove it more in this way. When we seek for God, we want Him on kind of our terms. God, I will be happy to do these things for you if you'll meet my needs. If you will do the right things for me. If you will organize my life the way I want you to. I expect God to bring me comfort and peace and joy and to be there to listen to me when I want to complain. And I have a whole list of things that I expect God to do. Now, I want you to see what I've actually done. Is when I try to go to this God that I expect, I've actually made a God in my image. I've made a God who reflects what I want Him to be like rather than the God who is actually there. And I'll go to the God I've made. But I'm not sure I want to go to the God who's revealed Himself in Scriptures. He's different. He's terrifying. He's unsafe. He's unpredictable. He doesn't do what I want him to. You felt that with other people, right? I just want somebody to say this when I tell them something. And you want to give them their lines before you have the conversation? Here's what you're supposed to say after I tell you what I'm about to tell you. We don't want people to do something we don't want. We do the same thing with God. You come and do what I want you to. You be made in my image instead of me in His image. And so I won't seek for the real God. I'll seek for one I made up. And every person who has ever lived or ever will live does the exact same thing. We make up a God in our own image. Instead of seeking for the one who is actually there, no one seeks for God. It's not just that it's affected our minds and then our hearts and the way that we seek and what we want. It's affected our will. Verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Again, Paul, that's so strong. How can you say no one does good? I mean, I've seen people do good. There's great stories of even pagans who sacrificed themselves for their, uh, you know, their other men in battle. They're willing to, to do something noble. There are plenty of people who don't know God who aren't particularly religious at all anyway, just to make the point, and yet they give to charity and do kind things. How can Paul say no one does good, not even one? Well, the Bible's definition of good is not simply that which is on the surface, but it extends to the very heart and why we do things. Charles Spurgeon told this illustration. He said there was a gardener in a great kingdom, and he was farming his field and pulled up the largest, most magnificent carrot he had ever seen. And so he took it to the king and he said, this is the most magnificent carrot 
I've ever seen or probably ever will see, and I give it to you as a token of my love and devotion. And the king received it, and he looked at the garden, and he said, Sir, you are a good steward of the land. Have this plot of land that was mine. It is yours to do as you wish. And the gardener left with great joy. And a nobleman had overheard the conversation. And so he said, if he gave him a carrot and got that, what will he do for someone who gives him a horse? And so he brought a magnificent stallion. And he said to the king, I'm a breeder of horses, and this is the most magnificent horse I have ever bred or will breed. And I give it to you as a token of my love and devotion. And the king said, thank you, and gave him nothing. Perplexed, the nobleman clearly wondered, and the king explained, you see, the gardener came and gave me a carrot. You came and gave yourself a horse. You were looking for the reward. You're doing these things for yourself and not for the king. And you and I and every human being, we do our good things because we want to commend ourselves or feel good about ourselves or say, see God, I'm okay. And we're giving, God our, we're giving ourselves good works instead of God. No one does good. And so we've all turned aside. We've all left the path. We've all rejected our, our purpose in, being, in reflecting the image of God and doing His good works to care for the creation. And the result is we've become worthless. Yesterday, at the Upwards game at halftime, Jeff Walton did a devotion and he brought out a basketball. had no air in it. Completely and, and utterly flat. He said, what's this good for? Well, you could maybe hold papers down. It's not good for anything. It's become worthless as a basketball. It has to have air in it. Because it's not functioning like a basketball, it's worthless. And because you and I aren't functioning as the image of God, the Bible says we become worthless for our purpose. We've distorted it and broken it. No one does good. That's how it's affected us. It's affected our minds our heart, and our will. And it's destroyed them. What about our relationships to other people? Sin and others. Look at verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. It says that we start using our speech to, to deceive people. Now, all of us can probably remember a time when we lied, particularly if you ever got caught in a lie. Those are the most memorable kinds. And so we can all say, yeah, I lied. But I'm over that. You know, my dad caught me in a lie and gave me a, a, a hefty discipline that made me say, I can't lie to my parents anymore. It's not, it's not worth it. But, you know what? We still lie. We won't do it as bold and brazenly as we might used to, but we still try to hide. We still try to cover up. We still try to present a picture of ourselves that's better than it really is. I'm not suggesting that the right thing to do is to, you know, confess our deepest, darkest sins to every person. But it, just asking, isn't it true that you have made a point to try to hide stuff from people in order to make yourself look a little better to them? It's deceit. I'll tell you one way that I do it. This was uh, Wednesday night. I sat down with some people to talk and I, I realized I was uh, trying to be real witty being real clever and kind of funny. I'm only marginally good at that, but I tried. And I was trying to be clever in our conversation. And what I was really doing wasn't to say I'm not, you know, trying to lie about something. I was just trying to keep them at a distance because if I told them stuff about me, if I became there and was serious, 
I risk being rejected. I risk being found out and not being very impressive. And I said, you know what? I'd just rather be impressive. And so I used my words to keep them at a distance. Instead of loving my neighbor, I said, hey, our relationship is based on shallow entertainment. And I'm going to protect myself instead of love you. You see, that's one of the things this passage says we do. We use our tongues to break relationships instead of build them. It's not just our speech, though. Look at verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We don't just try to keep people away. We actually actively hurt. I want you to think about sometime when you've run someone down with your words. You've got to have an example. And if you are self-controlled enough not to say it out loud, you've done it in your head. Where we have just wanted to undress a person with our words. The curses and the bitterness. You know where that comes from? It actually comes from the fact that we don't want to seek God. We're looking for a way to get away from God. That's why we don't seek Him. We don't want Him. And yet every time I see another person, you know what I see? is someone who's made in the image of God. And so what I have to do is mar that image so that I don't have to look at it and see it and think about it. And so I'm going to curse and be bitter and say you're not worth anything because I'm protecting my ability to run from God. You see how this works? Every one of us breaks relationship with our words and we curse in our heart, if not with our words. And then we fight. Verse 15, Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, the way of peace they have not known. There's a, a philosophy of life that everything's going to get better as we progress. Time is moving us toward better and better things. Well, the 20th century, the most recent one we've completed, was the bloodiest in human history by a long, long ways. Uh, one historian looked over about 3,500 years of recent history and said he found less than 250 that weren't marred by war somewhere. And I find that to be remarkable that it was that high. There's violence all over the place. But it's in our hearts too. It's not just the violence we've done out there. You may not have been someone who instigated war. You may not have been someone who's actually committed a physical murder. But in our hearts, we harbor that bitterness. And it's the seed that says to someone, you are not worth my time and my effort and I would be better off if you were not here. It's murder in the heart. We're violent by nature and we fight. And if you get in my way, and if I get in your way, we collide. Isn't that the story of our relationships? Sin has broken our mind, our will, our hearts. It has broken our relationships to others. And it has wrecked our relationship to God. Look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, sometimes a person will be so enamored with the opinions of others that they have no choice but to serve that opinion and to say, I've got to do whatever they want. I've got to protect that opinion. It's because we fear a person. We fear what they might say or what they might do and we have to have their approval. The psychologists call that codependency or a whole host of other psychological disorders, and it can really be disruptive. It's one of the reasons why, at least on a smaller scale, peer pressure and the power to conform to the community that you're in is so powerful. We fear other people. But in a healthy way, we can develop a sense of equality. We're equals. 
And it's okay for me to be different. And when that happens, there's a healthiness that comes. But then we take the same healthy thing that's with others and we apply it to God and we become equals with God. And there's no fear of God. There's no recognition of His honor and worth, of His superiority, of His authority over us. We become equals. And now I can look at God and say, it's okay if we're different. It's okay if, if I look at your commands and your obligations and I say, I don't know, I like these, but I disagree with that one. Let's just be friends. You see, I have no fear of God. And it really drives everything else. The result of this is that I've broken my relationship to God and I've become, here's Paul's word, accountable. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. We stand before Him with our record. It's not enough. We're accountable to Him. We have obligations to Him and we can't meet them. It says that we are condemned. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. No human will be able, being will be able to stand before God and be just. Just as the... Uh, Standing before God, it's a position. It's, it's uh, well, if you have not broken a law, if you've paid your taxes and done the things you're supposed to, you're just before the law. The law looks at you and says, okay, live in freedom. We stand before God as criminals, unjust. And there was no ability for us. We were absolutely, completely unable to make ourselves just again before God. It cannot happen. Not by the law. In verse 20, again, he says, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The only thing the law can do is expose our inability. I can't do this. If you get one word out of this passage to take home with you, let it be that one. Inability. Spiritually unable to make ourselves fit for God. It can't be done. And the last thing to see is that our mouths are stopped. Verse 19. So that every mouth may be stopped. We have no excuse. I mean, I want you to think about how you live your life right now. I think most of us have our mouths going. I do. I justify myself. You know, I'm not that bad. I've seen other people who are worse than me. Or... You know, if you had my history and my family background, you'd have the same problems I've got. Leave me alone. And I'll look for reasons in my life to justify everything I'm doing. This is because of something else. And I justify and I give excuses and I explain away all of my flaws. There is a day coming when no excuse will stand. There's a day coming when every single mouth will stand before God and when He says, why did you do this? We'll hold our hands up like this and say, I have no excuse. Our mouths will stop. We won't give any more excuses. We'll look and say, your judgment is right. I'm guilty. And all that we can do is take what's coming to us. Now, there is one other option. One other option is, that we stop our mouths now. That we stop making excuses for who we are and what we've become and we say to God, I I'm guilty before you. Is there any hope? 
I'm going to stop making excuses and saying I'm really okay. I'm going to say, God, you've nailed me. You've described me. This is who I am. And I'm going to stop making excuses. This isn't someone else's fault. I am this guy. Is there any hope? Jesus tells a parable where he comes to the same idea. He says there was a king with 10,000 soldiers and he saw a great king coming in the distance with 20,000 soldiers. And he began to count the cost. I'm not going to win. I'm not going to win against this great king is coming. He says, you know what a king does in that scenario? He sends out his messengers and says, are there any terms of peace? And you know what? It doesn't matter what the terms of peace are. You take them. Because if you fight, you'll die. Dear friend, realize who we are. Realize that Jesus, the great King, is coming and His wrath is being revealed. And if you decide to stand and fight, you'll die. But go to Him and say, are there terms of peace? Are there terms of peace? Is there anything that we can do to fix this? Whatever your terms are, I'll take them. And then hear this. Here's what he says. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. In terms of peace, I come as you are to my Son and receive righteousness instead of earning it as a gift through faith. Today, let's stop our mouths. No more excuses. And run to Jesus and say, give me righteousness or I die. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us see our need and Christ as the answer. And may we run to Him in faith. May we hear this great and glorious phrase that God did something for us. When we could not do anything for ourselves, You sent Your Son that we might become righteous. Now, O God, give us faith in Christ. And then through that faith, give us righteousness that clothes us and makes us justified before You. We cannot, we are unable to do this ourselves. Will You help us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.